Welcome to Kingdom Living Ministries, where our vision is knowing God, loving people, and making disciples. We trust this week's message will be a blessing to your life. Enjoy the teaching ministry of KLM. Peter preaches his first message, right? And he was with Jesus. This is the Apostle Peter. And on the first day, a whole lot of people got saved because of this message. But he lets them know something really important. Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked to the heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of, of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 37, it says, when they heard this, when they heard this. Now, what did they hear? What did they hear? Peter is speaking to a group of people who just crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if somebody's going to come up to you and you know you're guilty of killing somebody and be like, you did it. You're the one. I know you. I saw you. How's that going to make you feel? Guilty. Convicted. Condemned. Scared. Afraid. These are the emotions you go through when you want to go to repent before God. You're convicted. You're afraid. You're scared. You're guilty. You're all in the negative. You can't think nothing positive when you go to God. It's all about, God, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. Come and complain to God like he don't know what you did already. <laughs> right. But it's a trap. It's a trap people find themselves in. That's why God made this available to us. He, he calls it repentance. Now, Jesus died and resurrected and he went, he went to heaven. He ascended into heaven. Right? But in 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus was crucified based on what these people said. <laughs> they exchanged the Lord Jesus Christ for a criminal. Right. And it wasn't too long ago. So for Peter to come here and remind them of what they did, they know they're in the wrong. They know they're guilty. But how do you get the people to repent? He says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. The main point here is, you may have missed it. I'll bring you back to it. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, cut to the heart means they were stabbed. They were jabbed. Right? It's like a bullet going through your heart. You know that hurts you. You know that word is not nice. It's not something you want to hear at this moment. Right? But that's exactly what saved them. They were pricked to the heart. Repentance is a mental decision. Yes. 
You have to make a mental decision. You have to take steps in order to change. But until your heart has experienced that change, just forget about it. It's not going to happen. You could preach to heads, but we have to preach to the heart. And that's the way it goes. That's exactly what it is. You can say whatever you want to somebody who doesn't believe. You could give him reasons. You could go scientific on him. It's not going to work. But once you talk to the heart, that's it. That's why people respond to the love of God. That's why people respond when you tell them about the year of the Lord, about prosperity. Because they know what it feels like to be broke. And even if you're not broke, they know what it feels like to be sick. They know what it feels like to be rejected. That's why you preach to the heart. And that's why repentance has to start in the heart. Right? So when you have truth presented clearly, powerfully, it puts a sharp, double-edged sword into the hands of the Holy Spirit, which he uses to penetrate people's hearts. So what does this do for us? We're not supposed to comfort people who are lost. We're not supposed to make them feel good in their sin. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And we'll get to the reason why I keep mentioning right and wrong. Now, if you, if you have the chance to chat with, with anybody who's Jewish, they focus heavily on right and wrong. And when you become born again, you didn't have a problem with what was right and what was wrong. Like, you was doing anything. Right? And they say you was wilding. <laughs> you was just wilding. Anything goes. Anytime, any place, you do anything you want. Nobody could hold you down. Nobody could tell you nothing. Nada. But you had a problem when you came to church. You're like, oh, okay, so can I do this? Can I do that? Is this right? Is this wrong? Just hold up. Hold up. Hold up. You've been taught wrong. What you think was right was wrong. And what you thought was wrong was right. Now, it's a problem. It's a human problem, and it's deep. And we'll get to what God has offered to fix this. Because this is really important in repentance. Because there's a phase in repentance. You know you're like, oh, I'm not going to do this no more. You make a New Year's resolution, if I could use that illustration. You make a New Year's resolution. We're in the summer and you broke that resolution. I'm not going to eat this and that. And I'm, I'm going to go to the gym. And it doesn't happen in the summer. And definitely not in the winter. And we're back to the resolution in January again. I'm going to the gym. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Right? It's a phase you go through. So, before we get to how you get out of that phase, we're going to look at a practical demonstration of the word and the heart and how it changed a people. So, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality, there is sexual immorality among you, a kind of which is not tolerated even among pagans. 
For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, Paul has to address this. Somebody's committing incest in the church. The son is sleeping with his mom, and he's not ashamed. He doesn't see nothing wrong with it. And they come to church, and they, they could have the front row in front of everybody. Right? Now, if you're Apostle Paul, what would you do about this? How would you handle this? Okay? You have somebody who's drunk all the time. Well, you can't be drunk all the time, but let's say he's drunk all the time. And he's taking the front row. How would you address this? Right? You have a group of people, not, not just one person. Maybe you have, I can't say everybody on this row, on that row. So we'll just imagine something. We'll just make something. A whole group outside that sees nothing wrong with homosexuality. How would you address it as the apostle of that church? There are members of your church who don't see nothing wrong with it. Right? We have a whole lot of people who don't see anything wrong with not paying their taxes. How would you address it? And we have people who just lie on those forms. How would you address it? Right? So, in verse number 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of this world. Now, what he's saying is, he's not telling you not to roll with them. Like, just cast them aside. Don't have nothing to do with them. That's not going to be possible. We have to interact with these people day in and day out. So, obviously, that's not one way to treat somebody who's lost. You don't have to shun them. And that's a problem in the church. It's that Christian bubble. You know, you're in it. And you want to be in it with your Christian friends and just leave everybody in the world. Right? It's nice you can have a Christian program. You can listen to Christian music and all of that. You can have everything Christian under your roof. But you're still on the same planet with unbelievers and sinners. You believe in Jesus to go to heaven, but you're still here working at 9 to 5 the following morning. You understand? You have a role to play. You have a purpose. So God hasn't called you to separate yourself from sinners. You're supposed to mingle with the sinners, but you're supposed to have an influence on these sinners. Right? You're supposed to have an influence on these um, sinners. And we're going to get to how you're going to do that. We're going to get to that. This is just an introduction. Yeah. This is just my introduction. So, just like my pastor. So now, <laughs> so what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not, is it not those inside the church whom are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul was so stunned by this act of immorality, right? But Paul had love for the congregation. He didn't want to see the church all messed up. So 
He urged these believers to take immediate action. Don't be slow with it. If somebody's not right, call them out on the spot. Make it fast. Do it quick. It's better that way. Now, they're not going to like you for a season, but they'll get over it. They'll get over it. Right. And we have something that I never heard before. They call it church hurt. I never heard that before. But um, church hurt is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's when somebody gets rubbed the wrong way. Now, you're trying to preach to somebody, but you're, you're making them feel down. You're not giving value to this person. You're making them look like they don't matter no more. Now, that's not right. That's not how you go about it. right? Because the gospel came to give you the ability. And if you, if you pay attention to the gospel very well, anyone who gets saved is not sad about being saved, but they're happy. They rejoice. So I don't understand how you preach a message and make everybody cry, but they don't have a reason to return to God. You leave people feeling condemned. It may sound like I'm not talking to you, but we'll get to that. <laughs> right now, it just sounds like I'm talking about what the church has done to other people, but we're going to get to the people in the church and what's wrong with the people in the church. Okay. All right. So I was expecting Paul to say something, but um, it seems like I missed it. it. Seems like I missed it. I missed what Paul was saying. So he spoke about purge the evil person from from among you. In Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse number, verse number eight. Now he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we have godly grief, godly sorrow. This is necessary in repentance, right? This is necessary in repentance. And Paul lists his process. He wrote a letter to them because he was in jail. So, you know, he couldn't talk to them face to face. It would have been bad. It would have been a disaster. Because I don't know how you could make somebody cry with a text message if you don't understand what Paul was doing. Paul basically wrote them a text message, and he made them weep into repentance. Right? So the word, is, the word has an important role to play in repentance. But he says, he calls it a godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Many people don't like evangelists because they're so hard. They're like turn or burn, right? Now, I'm not going to say turn or burn is right, but that part of the message where they get to the heart, they call you out for what you did. You can't be stealing. You can't be taking money from the government and stashing it into your bank account, right? You can't be racist and be cool with it. 
right? You can't keep lying. You can't keep cheating in your marriages. You can't keep getting drunk. I'm still hung up on people who get drunk. I mean, you can't, you can't drink alcohol in excess. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't overdo it, right? It's good to call people out for that. But it must lead to salvation. It must lead to salvation. It mustn't cause somebody to get depressed. It mustn't cause people to just feel sorry. And one, one word that keeps going to heaven, not like I've been there, but like I know, I know people do that a lot because I, I did it a lot. It's telling God, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry is not going to cut it. Right? God, I'm sorry is not going to cut it. Because you're just apologizing for what you did, but you haven't come to the point where you want to make a change. So you realize that when you say you're sorry, you're back in that cycle. And you keep praying that prayer of, God, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again. Well, guess what? You do it again. And that's that cycle. It's a trap. So, Paul, Paul describes what godly sorrow, which produces repentance, feels like. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What that word means is it's producing you a burning desire. See what indignation, what fear, that's honor, that's reverence, that's respect. He uses the word longing. See what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point. You have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. If you go through repentance and you don't feel an innocence after it, that's not it. You go back into that cycle. That cycle has a name. It has a way it starts. It's called condemnation. And that's the trap for believers. The condemnation, that guilt. You never let it go. You sinned, you messed up, but you keep beating yourself over the head so hard you forget that God forgave you. You forget that he forgave you on the cross. He forgave you today and he's going to forgive you tomorrow. So that condemnation keeps you in that cycle. And that's what blocks repentance. So, you can preach to the heart. You can stab them in the heart. But if you don't get rid of that guilt and give them that ability to believe that they're forgiven, they're free, God loves them, they'll be back in that cycle. They'll be back in that cycle. Because, let's be real, transformation is hard. Changing is hard. Right? It's hard. It hurts. For you to change, for you to just grow up a little bit, you go through a lot. Right? I heard this. You don't have to go through the school of hard knocks. I don't know how they say it, but you know what I'm talking about. I know you know what I'm talking about. But you don't want to go through the school of hard knocks. Right? You don't want to go through that. So, 
let's 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 flow with Paul. He says, although I wrote to you in verse number 12, we're in 2 Corinthians 7, verse number 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order, in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. They had a desire. They had a passion. And Paul didn't want to lose that from the Corinthian church. And we have people who are passionate about God, but they're messed up. They might have these patterns in their life. We see gifted ministers going through one problem that when I heard of, I, it kind of shocked me. They said they, a lot of ministers go through depression and are suicidal. And then they have a lot of ministers who are addicted to porn. Now, for you to have this cancer in the church is deadly. Because if your leaders are messed up, then what happens to the flock, right? And it's not easy to stand at the pulpit and have to go through that cycle of condemnation. Because you'll be judged twice as everybody else. You understand where I'm coming from? So you as a believer might be living in sin, but you're not going to feel it as much as the person who preaches to you day in and day out. You might be depressed and suicidal, but it's not like the preacher. Because he has to come and give you a message of hope. So where does he get his message of hope from? Who's giving him hope? You understand? We all need each other. And this basic foundation of repentance is necessary. Because if you don't have a good foundation, there's nothing you could do about it. There's nothing you could put on top of it that's going to work. Right. So that's why we have a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, I'll read a different translation of verse 11. 7 verse 11. He said, What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Right? So they had diligence now. They could move step by step. They were careful now. Because of the word Paul preached to them, which caused true repentance. They had a zeal. They had a burning passion for God. As a believer, you need that burning passion for God. You need that zeal for God. If you don't have it, that salvation that you have is going to get tough. Because it takes fire to get some things out of your life. You understand? It takes fire to get some things out of your way. We need fire to cook food. You can have whatever it is. You can have vegetables. They taste good, but if you cook it, it tastes better. If you put it together, it tastes way better. You understand? So, any message of repentance comes with this fire from God, which produces in you this indignation, this fear, this zeal, this passionate desire for God. And we have three things that you need to escape. Now, the first of these three is guilt. Guilt is a prison that will keep you perpetually bound and unchanged. Guilt. That's why the first thing that comes to you is guilt for any sin that you commit, for anything that you do in the wrong. Anytime anybody calls you out, 
you have to deal with that guilt. The second is remorse, sadness. Now, this, this enslaves you. This traps you. This keeps you in that prison. This deals with your emotion, and it keeps you depressed, hopeless, and unchanged. Remorse. You're just sorry. But you're so sorry, you're gone beyond being sorry. So now you're depressed and you're unchanged. And then we have regret. Now, regret is self-pity, which is focused on your own personal loss. Regrets. So you regret that this happened in the past. You lost this and such, that and that. But guess what? It doesn't change you. You don't care about anybody else but yourself. That's what regret does to you. It's self-centered, right? So then, what's the way to repentance? What's the way to repentance? If you go to me to the book of Joel 2, chapter 2, verse number 13. Joel. Too. That sounds better. <laughs> Joel. Okay, so if you're there with me, say amen. amen. Okay, can I have anybody just read what, what they have? Anybody? Just, verse number 13, chapter 2. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Can you take it again, Alan? And rend your hearts and not your garments. Pause. Okay, so he starts with rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. That's the first place you focus on in repentance, your heart. It's not your clothes, it's not what you lost, it's not your bank account, it's not your checks, it's not your reputation, it's your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Can you continue, Adam? Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Pause. He said, return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and he is merciful. That's the reason why you're going back to God. It's not because he's going to hold something against you. It's not because you broke the law of God. It's not because you went against your own standard of righteousness. But it's because God is gracious, merciful, and will forgive. That's why you return to God. That's that hope that keeps you grounded. That's the only reason why you won't slip again. Because you know your father loves you. You know he's gracious. You know he's merciful. And you know he will forgive. Hallelujah. So he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn to God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. People still have a view that God is mad. God is pissed. I understand where they're coming from. But if God sends you his son, and his son died for you, and his son resurrected for you, God's not mad at you. 
And that's what keeps people in that cycle. Their condemnation is because they think God is mad at them. God's not right with them. But the thing is, you're not right with God. That's what it is. You're not right with God. So you think God is going to be mad at you, but you're mad at yourself. That's just what it is. It's that self-centeredness. That self, that me, 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 that I, I, I. That's what traps people. I did this. I did that. I am sorry. I. You're going to pray. You're going to talk about God. You're going to talk to God, my father. But you're starting with I. Where's your focus? I did this. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Right? So he starts with, rend your hearts. And the first way to repentance is to have the heart revealed. Rend basically means to open it up, tear it apart, and go in. It's like performing surgery. That's right. That's the only true way to repentance because you don't know your heart. And I'll say it again. To the church, you don't know your heart. And to the unbeliever, you don't know your heart. Nobody knows the heart. Nobody. And that's why God's first step in repentance is to go for the heart. Right? So Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. He searches the heart and he will test your mind. You understand? So if your heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all things, how are you going to repent and have it true once and for all? How are you going to go through the process of repentance and know that you're successful? How are you going to go through repentance and get your goal, which is to be changed? Now I'll get to it. <laughs> yes. So we'll start with the first one. I'll take you back to Hebrews 6 verse 1. Hebrews 6 verse 1. Let's go back. Because I missed this for like a whole year. I, I missed this. It was right in front of me, but I missed it. So Hebrews 6 verse 1. It says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. That's the key word. Repentance from dead works. Now, when you become a believer, you don't, you're not necessarily concerned about sins, but you're dealing with something which is much more sinister than sin. It's called dead works. Now, Sins may have been an issue for you, and everybody has what they used to do 
before they got saved. Like, you know you was wilding before you got saved, and you know what you do when you're wilding. <laughs> so that is that. I don't have to call nobody out on what they did when they wasn't saved, and they still doing it while they saved. I'm not going to call you out on that, because we have something bigger than that. It's called dead works. Now, Hebrews 9, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Mentions this again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? Why does he say how much more? Verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, a more perfect tent, not made with his hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, to secure an eternal redemption. Now, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of an ifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? So this is what 9 is focused on. It's focused on temple sacrifice. On the day of Yom Kippur, one goat, saves the entire nation and the priest for the whole year. That's a goat, just one, right? You have this one animal that by the blood of that one animal, all your sins are wiped out for the year, so you're good. That's Yom Kippur. That's the holiest day of all the days. The day where you make atonement as the high priest. And why does the writer of Hebrews mention this? Because Jesus Christ, our high priest, when he was on the cross, was the Lamb of God, making an atonement with his blood. So when he resurrected, he has resurrected with the blood and has appeared in heaven through the eternal spirit. Right? He offered himself without blemish to God to purify a conscience from dead works that we may serve the living God. I'll connect the dots. In order to have life, you need to offer life. Right? So for your sins, the person who sins must atone for his sin with blood. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. But God gave us his son who offered his blood as the lamb of God, right? To buy for us an eternal redemption, to buy us back from the power of sin and to buy forgiveness of sins for us. That we may be clear before God, right? But here's the process of the blood that works on our behalf. It says, it will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, what are dead works? Because you can't fight what you don't know. You can't stop what you can't see. You can't stop what you can't identify. You can't stop what you don't know. 
right? You can't repent of something that you don't know is wrong. So what does all of this have to do with dead works? This is the thing about dead works. Dead works are efforts. Dead works are things you do, but are not in line with God's word. So if you're talking about anything about the flesh, anything that we mentioned before, all of that comes under dead works. But then it gets much more sinister when you're working for God, but that's not what God wants from you. Now, it may sound like that's not possible. I, I don't know what you're talking about. But Jesus calls a group of people out in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in Revelation, chapter 3, verse 1, he's speaking to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. I'll take it again. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. So, if Jesus says he knows their works, that means this is a working church. This is a functioning church. This is a church that has things going on for them. Come on. They could have an outreach. They could be given to the poor. They could be doing work in the community that God hasn't called them to do. That's what God is talking about. I know your works, but you are dead. I know your works, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and it's about to die. So even what they have is about to be lost. Now, he says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. This is not the first time this is happening. This is something peculiar about God. You can't bring to God whatever you want. You can't set the standards for God on what is right and what is wrong. So you just dish it out to him that this is all I have. Take it. There was one person who did this. His name is Cain. Right? And if Cain is like a stretch far off, like, oh, I'll never be like Cain. We have Saul. He was a king. He was a king. Now, that's, that's a king. He's in charge of a whole nation. But he went wrong with God. He tried to do what the priest is supposed to do. And God said, no, that's not your place. Right? Things get tricky when you have to serve God. Because he's a king, and he's picky like that. He could be petty like that. <laughs> if I have to say it that way for people to understand. God could be petty like that. And it's in righteousness. It's in righteousness. It's for the greater good. So he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains, and it's about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
What are dead works? Dead works are full of death, inspired by death, linked to death, and produces death. How would you know your works are dead? We'll look at the book of Romans, chapter 8. Now, Romans chapter 8, verse number 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Right? Back to verse number 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things according to the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is the first way for you to know you have dead works. What's your mindset? What's your focus? This is going to get everybody. Because first of all, if repentance is about your mindset, making a decision for God, but he says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. First of all, if your mind is not focused on the kingdom, then you got to repent. Now, if you have a mind focused on the flesh, Paul could list anything to do with the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, but we're not going to get into it because you know what the flesh looks like. You know when you're wilding, that's your flesh. So whatever you do when you're wilding, that's your flesh. And you can't please God with that. So you got to repent of that too. So now you're in a situation where your flesh is not wilding, but you're not for the kingdom. But you're in the church. You still got to repent. Because Christ Jesus called a church to repent. He called a church to repent. And this is not a church that's passive. This is not a church that comes and just warms the pews. No. This is the people who are working for God. And he says, I haven't found your works perfect. So that means they haven't reached a standard yet. Right? It gets tricky when you become a Christian. It gets tricky. And that's why God offers the solution with repentance. But he says repentance from dead works, not just sin. Repentance from dead works. So this is it. You need to repent from having a carnal mind and have your mind focused on things of the spirit. Because you can't please God if you're focused on the flesh. So if you have works and God tells you, your works are not complete. Your works are dead. Those are all works of the flesh. But better still, those are dead works. You're doing it in the name of God, but it's dead. You could praise just to spite some people, but it's not to give glory to God. You could preach just to throw somebody in jail. Now, that was done to Paul. That's not to the glory of God. That's just you. That's just flesh. You give because you have to. Yeah. 
That's not to the glory of God. That's just you. Because you have to. Because let's be real. When you give when you have to, you struggle financially. God doesn't make up for it. Because there's no God in it. So God doesn't have to commit to what he's not a part of. You understand? You might be giving the tithe, but it's not to God. You're giving the tithe because you have to. And what happens? If God says he's going to pour that blessing that you don't have room enough to keep it, why are you still broke? Why are you struggling? Why, you have, why do you still have enough room for God to fill? God will follow up. God will settle. But God's not going to be a part of something that he's not welcome in. So God is looking for pure hearts. God is looking for hearts totally dedicated to him. And in order to get to that point, he says, repent from dead works. But how do you repent from dead works? Hebrews 9 verse 14, again. Now he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When you repent, you start with the blood. Because you need to purify your conscience of dead works. Now, what's the conscience? What is the conscience? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Okay, I might have went ahead of myself. We'll, 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 we'll come back to Romans chapter 1. We'll come back to Romans chapter 1. Now, in Hebrews 9 verse 14, back to Hebrews 9 verse 14. Where he says, purify your conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. Right? Now, in verse number 22, he says, Indeed, under the law, everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he says, everything is purified with blood. Everything. So once you have the blood in place, anything it touches will be purified. That's why the first thing he goes for is your conscience. Your conscience. Now your conscience is what allows you to do whatever you want to do. It's your judge. That's where you go to to make sure you have, you're clear to do whatever you want to do, right? So your conscience excuses you or it will accuse you of anything that you do. I'll take it again. Your conscience is what gives you permission to do anything in your life. If you go against your conscience, what you have is guilt. What you have is condemnation. And what you have is that self-pity, that remorse. Right? Because then you judge yourself. And that's the job of the conscience. It's just the judge. 
But the thing about the conscience is, it's not the best organ to tell right from wrong. Now, you may not see it clear enough, but then we'll look at Paul, Apostle Paul. And the reason why I bring up Paul is because he demonstrates why the conscience is not the best at telling right from wrong. So we'll just wrap this up real quick. Now, when Paul talks about the vision to Agrippa, he mentions that he, Jesus mentions to Paul that he's persecuting him. But Paul believes he's serving God out of a good conscience by killing Christians. Right? And at a point, he says he's not guilty in the law. He's not guilty in any point. How does he make such a conclusion? It's because of his conscience and what the law says. That's why he was killing Christians and he didn't feel guilty. Jesus didn't hold it against him. But he had to turn him away from that. Because in his heart, he had a reason for doing it. He was totally committed to God and his kingdom. So he sees the Christians as people who are going against the tradition of the fathers. They're going against Moses. They're going against God's direct word. But out of a pure conscience, I wouldn't say pure, I'll say out of a good conscience, he decides to kill people. And that's the problem with the conscience. You can have a good conscience and still do wrong. And that's where the trick is. That's why some people have certain sins they won't stop because they don't see anything wrong with it. That's why you still continue to do dead works in the church because you wouldn't see anything wrong with it. You keep giving because you have to because to you it's not wrong. That's the scripture. Your conscience says it's good, but to God it's not good enough. That's why you need the blood to purify your conscience. And that's how you start with repentance. You start with the blood to purify the conscience of dead works so that you could serve the living God at that standard. Now, after you have the blood, we have to go back to the spiritual mind. You need to have a spiritual mindset in order to achieve repentance. So we'll just hang in Romans chapter 8. And I'll just, I'll just give it to you. So in Romans 8 verse 8, it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And those who set their mind on the flesh is death. But to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. So in 8 verse 9 he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. That's how you know you're in the spirit. If you have the spirit of God in you. That's it. That's where you have to start from. Or else, you're going to try to activate something you already have. 
You're going to try to work for a gift you already have. You're going to try to gain something that you already have. You are in the spirit when you have the spirit of God in you. And that's what you need to break away from the flesh. You're only in the flesh because you see yourself in the flesh. But if you take what God's word has said about you, you are not in the flesh because the spirit of God dwells in you. Therefore, you are in the spirit. That changes everything. If you have an addiction, if you have a habit, if you keep going through this cycle, if you have this pattern in your family, it gets broken because you are in the Spirit. How? You have the Spirit of God in you. That's your ticket from the flesh. That's how you get your mind renewed to have a spiritual mind. It's not because you're in the flesh. It's not because you see yourself as someone who's in the flesh. You have a body. You live on earth. That's not what God is telling you. But God is telling you that you have his spirit in you. Therefore, you are in the spirit and not in the flesh. So that's step two in repentance. Now, when you repent, when you have your conscience cleared, Right? When you have the blood set your conscience free from dead works. Now, when you have your mind free from dead works through the cleansing of the blood, and now you're no longer in the flesh because you understand that you are in the spirit because the spirit of God dwells in you. And I think I'll have everybody say that with me. If you could read it with me. Whatever you have, just read it out loud. You, however, verse number 9, Romans 8, 9. You, however, Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay, so let's take it again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let's take it again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Why? Why do you have to understand this? It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in verse 11, he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, which dwells in you. This is key. This is key to your transformation. You have your conscience cleared by the blood, and you have the Spirit of God in you. But you have the Spirit which raised Christ from the dead in you, which gives life to your mortal body. Why do you need life in this body? Why do you need the life of God in this body? Because of service. Because of service. 
So, I'll go over these two points again. In repentance, according to Hebrews 9, verse 14, you need the blood to cleanse your conscience that you may serve God. And then, when you have the Spirit of God in you, you are not in the flesh anymore, according to Romans 8. But the Spirit of God gives life to your mortal body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the message of repentance. We thank you for bringing to our minds, bringing to our awareness what dead works are. Father, let this word as a seed in us grow. Continue to give us understanding and revelation of what dead works are, that you may clear our conscience of these dead works. Father, we thank you that we have your spirit in us. We thank you that we have the spirit of life in us. We thank you that we have the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in us. We thank you that we have the resurrecting power in us. We thank you for his resurrection. And we thank you for the life that you have given to the mortal body. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you for a chance for us to know God. We thank you that we get to start from the place where we rent the heart. Father, search our hearts because our hearts are desperately wicked. Father, search our hearts. We do not want to go into deception. Father, we want our works to be found perfect before you. Father, we thank you for the blood which will cleanse our conscience from these dead works to serve you, living God. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. That concludes this week's message, and thank you very much for listening. For more information about Kingdom Living Ministries, please call us at 732-324-2200 or visit our website at kingdomlivingnj.org. Also, you can write to us by mail at P.O. Box 519, Rancocas, New Jersey, 08073. And lastly, if you would like to partner with this ministry through your prayers or financial support, contact us via email at partners at kingdomlivingnj.org. Our prayer is that this message has encouraged you to live out the kingdom of God daily in your life by your obedience to His Word. God bless you.